I don't know if you recognize the song that my wife was playing on the flute there, but the key line in it is, may all who come behind us find us faithful. And I was thinking about that as she played, um, that later today I'll be speaking to a group of 25 to 30 high school students who are all leaders in our student ministry. And I think about them. Uh, As they lead and learn to lead, I pray that they will find us faithful as they look up to us. And I think of the generation behind them, uh, our grandchildren, maybe your grandchildren. Will they find us faithful? Because that's what we are about, is passing on generation to generation uh, the great good news of the gospel. So thank you for that. So how many of you have ever attended a graduation ceremony? Okay, most of us. Uh, This is us with uh, one of our boys at their college graduation. Most of us would agree that uh, graduating with a degree, high school, college, maybe grad school, is a really good thing. And most of us would assume that because getting a degree um, is a wonderful thing. It requires lots of work and and diligence, but it's not the end goal. Uh, I think we would all agree that It's a step to a greater goal, which is getting a job or establishing a career, actually doing something with that degree. But not a man named Michael Nicholson of Kalamazoo, Michigan. There he is with all his diplomas and his tassels. Uh, He's now in his 80s, but by the time he was 71 years old, he had earned one bachelor's degree, two associate's degrees, 23 master's degrees, three specialist degrees, and one doctoral degree for a grand total of 30 degrees, which makes him a graduate of the class of 63, 67, 69, 70, 74, 75, 77. You get the picture. Now, most of his degrees are related to education, educational leadership, library science, school psychology, but there are other degrees in home economics, health education, law enforcement. He even has several seminary degrees. He was in school for 55 years, but he never had a job in any one of the degree areas he studied, ever. Here's how he explains it. Quote, I just stayed in school and took menial jobs to prepare for the education and just made a point of getting more degrees, and eventually I retired so that I could go to school (laughs) full-time. Now, I'm all for education. I have several degrees myself, but there's something just a bit sad maybe weird, about a guy with 30 university degrees who's never done anything with those degrees. Now, today we're going to learn that it's actually possible to do the same thing with our faith. We're continuing in our series from James called Faith Works. And just by way of a little bit of review, uh, James is the younger half-brother of Jesus, and he's writing to Jewish background Christians, and he's become concerned that there's a growing division or separation, disconnect, between what they believe and how they're actually living. Above all else, we've seen that James is intensely practical, uh, that he's very direct, that he pulls no punches, and he's calling his readers and us to a faith that works. Faith that works in trials, faith that works in temptation, faith that works in everyday life. And last week we saw he's particularly concerned with what he calls partiality. That is, a preferential treatment of the rich over against a dishonoring of the poor. And today we're going to look at James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. And it's a passage that some consider to be the most controversial passage uh, that James writes, and among the most controversial in all the New Testament. So uh, I'm going to read as you either look at your Bible or look on the screens. 
uh, this passage. James chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. He writes, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? The word there can be translated works. Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. So today we're going to talk about two things. First, what faith is, and then secondly, what faith does. First, what faith is. How many of you have ever heard of a man named Charles Blondin? Anybody recognize the name? Oh, a few historians out there. Uh, well, Charles Blondin was a French acrobat who became famous in 1859 when he walked across Niagara Falls on a tightrope. This is an actual photo. I'm not sure how they got that, but there he is. He liked to be called the Great Blondin. With some 25,000 people watching, he walked across a 1,300-foot-long tightrope, stretched some 160 feet above the water, no safety net. He never walked with a safety net. Over the next few months, if you read the story, he walked across the falls dozens of times, each time performing greater and greater and riskier stunts on the tightrope. For example, walking backward all the way across, uh, walking blindfolded all the way across, walking on stilts, and once even pushing a wheelbarrow. We have a picture of that one across Niagara Falls. The crowds grew larger and larger, I think up to close to 100,000 people watching and cheering in amazement. Then at one point, after pushing the wheelbarrow across, he addressed the crowd and he shouted to them, uh, Do you believe? Do you believe? And they say, We believe. Do you believe I can push this wheelbarrow across with a man in it? We believe. We believe. And then he said, Who will be that man? <laughs> And um, not surprisingly, no one volunteered. But the one person who did believe in Blondin was his manager, a man named Harry Colcord, who actually allowed Blondin to carry him piggyback style across Niagara Falls. Now, that's faith or either complete insanity. Makes me queasy just to look at that. Look at verse 14 here. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such faith save them? I'm going to read that again just so you hear it. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such faith save them? Now you need to know in the original language that question is phrased in such a way as to indicate the answer is clearly to be 
No. It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no. Now, if you're paying attention at all, uh, you might be saying to yourself, hold on, hold on, hold on just a second, because that sounds like it might be a contradiction. Did I just hear him say, it isn't enough just to have faith? Did he just say that without good works, faith is dead? Isn't that a contradiction of what the Apostle Paul says multiple times in the New Testament? For example, Ephesians 2, Paul writes, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. It's not by works, so that no one can boast. Or in Galatians chapter 2, We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ, not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. So if you're wondering about this, James would say, good, I got you right where I want you. That's exactly the effect I'm looking for. Martin Luther, you may be aware, the, the great Reformation theologian, was so bothered by James' emphasis on good deeds or works that he called this letter an epistle of straw. And he made no secret that he would prefer it be left out of the New Testament altogether. Now, in Luther's defense, he was arguing at that time against a medieval church that was teaching that good works were the way to salvation, especially financial good works. You could give money and purchase what were called indulgences so that you and your loved ones could get into heaven. So Luther was preaching against that. So how are we to understand today? Well, let me take a little side trip here and remind you of who Paul was and who he was writing to and who James is and who he's writing to. This will help you understand. Paul was a Jewish background follower of Jesus who was called to take the gospel to the Gentile world, that is the non-Jewish world. So he's writing to people who were not Jewish and were worried that they could not be true followers of Jesus without also observing all the requirements of the Jewish law. So Paul emphasizes salvation by grace alone. Okay? James, also a Jewish follower of Jesus, Jewish background follower of Jesus, but he, on the other hand, is leader of the church in Jerusalem. So he's writing to a group made up almost entirely of Jewish background people. And when they heard the gospel, that salvation was by faith in the grace of Jesus Christ, some of them may have assumed that because they were not saved by obedience to the law, therefore that obedience or holy living just didn't matter anymore. So James is focused on the result of grace and salvation, and that is a changed way of living. So they're both preaching the same gospel, but from two different perspectives. I'll talk more about that in just a minute. Let me try to illustrate it like this. How many of you have ever had a root beer float? Okay, this is an A&W root beer float, sort of the Cadillac, the grandfather of all root beer floats. And if you make a root beer float, I was going to make one for you today, but I couldn't figure out how to keep the ice cream cold and all that. But a root beer float is root beer, obviously, plus a scoop of vanilla ice cream. And that's a root beer float. If you have the root beer without the ice cream, you have a nice glass of root beer, but you don't have a root beer float. If you have ice cream without the root beer, you have a nice dish of ice cream, but you don't have a root beer float, right? You need both to have a root beer float. And that's, in a way, what James is saying, although I'm pretty sure he wouldn't say it that way. Um, faith and works, they simply cannot be separated if we understand 
faith correctly. James says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Then he says, can such faith save them? Notice something very subtle here, uh, but it's important. The phrase, such faith. What does he mean by such faith? He's talking about the kind of faith that has no deeds. Right? And he's saying that he would regard such faith as being completely nominal, superficial, and not to be faith at all. Like, he's talking about a person, let's say, who calls himself a Christian, goes to church every week, but there's absolutely no evidence in their lives. They don't read the Bible, they don't give, they don't serve, they dislike all their neighbors. And so James would say, I question, such faith is not really faith at all, he's saying. James uses the word faith 15 times, at least in this letter. So what does he mean by faith? I'm going to mention three things. First, he means that faith points to firmly held beliefs. Right? We know that. James has already taught us that as followers of Jesus, our beliefs in him are to be so firm, so sincere, that they cannot be shaken by trials and they cannot be overwhelmed by temptation. Sincere, firmly held beliefs. To illustrate, think about modern air travel. If I ask you, uh, do you believe 100 tons of steel can fly? If I'd asked that 200 years ago, people would say, of course not. But if I asked you, you would say, yes, I believe. And you would say that because you've observed planes flying overhead in the sky, because you've heard testimony of people who've actually flown in those planes, and you've probably even flown yourself. So you have a firm belief in airplanes. So faith is firmly held belief. But in what? The second thing James means by faith is that our faith has a specific content. He's writing to Jewish background believers in Jesus who would have understood that faith has a specific object or content. Back in verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in what? In our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So for James, faith in the Lord of glory means to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God who died and rose again, and that through him and only through faith in him we receive new hearts through the forgiveness of sin, new identity by being adopted into his family, new purpose that's serving and bearing witness through his church, and new destiny to reign with him forever in the new heaven and new earth. And that's what James assumes to be the content of of our faith. That's what our faith is in. But there's one more thing. Uh, actually, let me back up. That's an assumption, by the way, that we can no longer make in our culture today, that faith has a specific content. Uh, the zeitgeist, and that's a German word that just means the spirit of the age, the spirit of the age of modern America is not terribly concerned about the content of faith. Uh, our culture is sort of a faith in faith understanding. Uh, consider these quotes from a popular spiritual guru named Deepak Chopra. You can find his books everywhere. In his book called The Seven Spiritual Laws of Success, he wrote, When your actions are motivated by love, the surplus energy you gather can be channeled to create anything you want, including unlimited wealth. Now, that sounds good. Who doesn't want energy, surplus energy, and unlimited wealth? But notice the content of that faith is you. You're the center of that faith. 
In an interview recently, Mr. Chopper also said this, I want to offer the possibility that Jesus was truly, as he proclaimed, a Savior, not the Savior, not the one and only Son of God. Rather, Jesus embodied the highest level of enlightenment. Jesus intended to save the world by showing others the path to God consciousness. It's actually pretty close to the exact opposite of what James is teaching. Now, let's go back to our airplane analogy. Let's say, for example, that you firmly believe airplanes can fly, which most of you do. Let's say you decide you want to fly from Chicago to New York City because you always wanted to visit New York City. You go to O'Hare, you buy a ticket, you stand in line, you go to the gate, you get on the plane because you firmly believe that airplane can take you to New York City. You sit in your seat and you're right next to a fellow traveler who also believes firmly in air transportation and you strike up a conversation. You say, this is my first trip to New York City. The person sitting next to you looks at you strangely and says, this plane's going to San Francisco. You say, but I believe, I firmly believe that we're going to New York City. See, it's possible to believe, to believe sincerely, and to be sincerely wrong. Our culture no longer believes that. As long as you believe something, you're fine. James is assuming that the content of our faith is Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Thirdly, James is assuming that faith is not only firm belief, it's not only firm belief in a specific content, the gospel, but it's faith that also produces action or deeds. That is, true faith is more than intellectual agreement with an idea. And James drives this point home with his customary bluntness. Verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith, (coughs) excuse me, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even demons believe that and shudder. Did you get that? Let me read it from the New Living Translation, which makes it a little easier to understand what James is saying. Here's the New Living Translation. Now, someone may argue, some people have faith, others have good deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. You say you have faith, for you believe there is one God. Good for you. Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. A recent Gallup poll showed that 81% of Americans today say they believe in God. 81%. But believing in God does not make you a Christian. James says 100% of demons believe in God. And they tremble in terror. James is saying that the true faith is more than intellectual agreement with an idea or an intellectual agreement that God exists. Genuine faith in Jesus produces a certain kind of behavior, a certain kind of life. James is saying we cannot separate Jesus the Savior from Jesus as Lord. Even demons believe (coughs) that God exists. Even demons know that Jesus is Savior, but they do not surrender in faith to him as Lord. It's possible that James was writing to people who saw the gospel as a kind of get out of jail free card. Since salvation could not be earned, since Jesus forgives sin, there was no longer any need to obey his teachings, like love your neighbor as yourself, and all the other things he said, because you're already forgiven. James is saying, no, Jesus is Savior, but he's also Lord. And when we experience grace, 
The result is a greater desire to follow and obey. And that leads us to the second thing I want to talk about, and that is what faith does. What faith does. Years ago, I heard a Christian author and speaker named Tony Campolo tell a story of being invited at one time years ago to speak at a large church. It happened to be a women's ministry gathering of several hundred women in an auditorium. And before the meeting, the leader of that particular ministry um, met with Tony and said that they had a tradition that uh, they would always have a little time of prayer before the the meeting. So would he be kind enough to invite a few requests and pray for them before he began his talk? He said, sure, I'll do that. So when he did, the first request that came from the audience was to pray for a certain missions ministry that uh, needed $5,000 within a week or they'd have to shut down whatever ministry it was. And Campolo thought for a moment, and then he said to this group where he was the guest speaker, he said, "Um, I'm sorry, but I don't think I can pray for that. Awkward silence in the room. Then he continued and said, I believe it's wrong to ask God to do that which is in our power to do ourselves. And I believe, he said, there is $5,000 in this room right now that we could give to that ministry. And he said, I'll start. He went down and grabbed the offering basket and took out everything in his pocket, $20, and put it in the, in the basket and then handed it to the first lady in the first row. And just waited as they passed it around. It came back, he counted it up, it was over, just a little over $5,000. James here is making the same point. And I saw an anonymous quote that said, Sometimes we pray and God moves the mountain. Sometimes we pray and God gives us the shovel. Genuine faith is a working faith, James says. A faith that works. And then he offers two illustrations from Old Testament history. Verse 20, you foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Here James is quoting directly from Genesis 15, verse 6. Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. James is referring to a story that all Jewish people knew. The story of Abraham and Isaac. He's saying that Abraham's obedience to God's command was evidence that he had faith. That he trusted God completely. So God credited him with righteousness. And then he gives a second illustration. Like that was not enough. Verse 25, in the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what, he did, what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. A much, much different example, but also one that every Jewish person would know backwards and forwards. It comes to us in Joshua chapter 2. Rahab was a Canaanite woman, that is a foreigner, and a prostitute who protected the two spies sent by Joshua to scout out the city of Jericho. Both James and the writer of the book of Hebrews <coughs> excuse me, uh, state that it was Rahab's faith in the God of Israel, Yahweh, that saved her and that her faith was evidenced then in her actions. Now, something interesting to notice here. It would be really hard to think of two different examples than these two people. Abraham, 
a man who became the father of the nation, and Rahab, a foreign woman who was a prostitute from pagan background. Both made righteous by faith, and their faith then producing obedient action. Now here's the point James is making. We are not saved by our works. We are saved for our works. If you try to write the gospel out as an equation, it might look something like this. Here's the way many people think of it today in our world. Works plus a little bit of faith equals salvation. That is, you do enough good things that outweigh the bad and add a little faith, you're going to get salvation. That's not what James is saying. That's not the gospel. What James is saying is faith produces salvation, which is a gift. You can't earn it. You can only receive it. Salvation, then, produces works. That's what he wants us to understand. Now, the key to understanding James and Paul is which end of the faith equation they're looking at and, when we, and where we place the importance of good works. If we put good works before faith, we're back into trying to earn our salvation, and Paul's warning us against that. No, you can't do that. But when we see that our faith is to produce good works, we then understand what James is trying to tell us. When Lorena and I were uh, first married, before we came here to this church, uh, we, she and I spent six months living in Bolivia, uh, in, right in the middle of South America. At that time, Bolivia was, the, and it may still be, the second poorest country in the Western Hemisphere after Haiti. We were on a short-term mission uh, assignment there, um, teaching English as a second language in a small Christian university in Santa Cruz, Bolivia. But while we were there, we took a trip to La Paz, which is uh, one of the highest cities in the world, located somewhere around 12,000 feet above sea level. Uh, spectacular views. But we were in La Paz. Uh, the last night we were there, we had, as I recall, uh, we had dinner at a nice restaurant and we're walking back to our hotel. It was about 9 or 10 in the evening, dark, and it was getting cold. It was wintertime um, there, and in the altitude, it was just a, just a different kind of cold that would get to you. And just a few blocks from our hotel, as we were walking along, I heard a sound. At first, I didn't know what it was. It was kind of like a soft whimper, like it might be a, 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 a stray dog or something. And, and I kept hearing the sound, and I looked around, and I finally realized it was coming from a, a small boy, just maybe seven years old, seven or eight years old, sitting down, huddled uh, next to a wall right next on the, to the sidewalk. And he was there by himself in the dark, and he was making that sound. He was crying softly in the night. Um, I didn't know what to do. We were walking. We had to get back to our hotel. Um, I wondered... You know, as I'm walking, was he hungry? Why, why was he on the street so late by himself? Was he lost? Was he in pain? My Spanish wasn't very good. And I allowed all those questions and the awkwardness of it to kind of paralyze me, and we just, we, we just continued walking to our hotel. And the next day, we left La Paz, um, but that sound and that little nameless boy uh, never left me. I realize now, looking back, that what I felt in that moment was, was faith, was Christ living in me, genuinely, urging me to put my faith into action. 
But my inaction at that moment, while I had lots of reasons, is what rendered my faith useless in that moment to that little boy. And James would say, in that moment, dead. James said, you believe in Jesus? Good. Now, show me your faith by what you do. Show me your faith by how you live. Show me your faith in action. And he says the same thing to us today. We bow with me as we pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word today, for this ancient letter from a man who knew you, who was transformed from skeptical believer by being confronted by your resurrection life, and who in this letter challenges us to be people not just of good deeds, also not just the people who say we believe, but a people of both. Faith in you and good deeds because of that faith. Teach us to live out the life of the one who calls us to follow him. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Just before our benediction today, remind you as you head out, if you're willing, pick up uh, one of your Be a Chapel on Your Street packets and see what you can do with that in the coming couple of weeks. Our benediction today comes from Hebrews chapter 13. May we go now in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and may he equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you.